0: do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: If you're shopping while working, eating or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back, and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty and Expedia and even stack sales still think in the back of Kim Il-sung's mind, sure peaceful nuclear, but aspiring to nuclear weapons capability, to be part of the Nuclear Weapons Club. Right now they're probably not there, I think the sense is they're not, but that they're on the cusp. We're talking six months, 12 months, maybe 18. The war of words between Kim
0: Jong-un and the president. Doesn't help. Not helpful. Not helpful. Particularly with a guy like Kim Jong-un.
1: Absolutely. I just think we just got to tone that down. Stop.
0: This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of Cipherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders who talk candidly about what they've seen and what they think it means for global security. As a former CIA analyst, Morell is uniquely skilled at asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. We haven't been this close to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis. The confrontation with North Korea is dangerous. It's building its capabilities to put a U.S. city at risk of a nuclear attack and the President of the United States has made clear that we're not going to let that happen. So today on Intelligence Matters, we are very lucky to have with us one of our nation's leading experts on North Korea. Somebody who not just studied the problem, but somebody who actually worked it for years at CIA and for years at the State Department. Somebody who's actually sat across the table from North Koreans and negotiated with them. Ambassador Joe He is going to help us think about how we got to where we are today and what the best path forward is for the United States. <laughs> On November 10th, when Barack Obama met with Donald Trump during the transition, uh, one of the things that President Obama told then President-elect Trump was that North Korea would be the most serious national security issue that he would face as president. Admiral Jim Stravitas, who is the dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts and the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, uh, just wrote a few weeks ago that we are at the highest risk of nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Graham Allison uh, from Harvard's Kennedy School, who's the leading expert on the Cuban Missile Crisis, wrote in the New York Times recently that what we see unfolding now is a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. So this is why we are delighted to have with us today um, one of our country's leading experts, practitioners on North Korea. There are a lot of people who have studied this problem but there are very few who have actually worked it, and one of those is Ambassador Joe Detrani. And so, Joe, we are thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you, Michael. Joe was a career CIA operations officer uh, focused on East Asia. Um, He was the director of East Asian operations uh, at CIA, among many other senior roles there. He was the United States representative to the Korean Energy Development Corporation, and we'll probably come back to that at some point in this discussion. He was the State Department's special envoy, to the six-party talks with North Korea. He was the intelligence community's mission manager for North Korea. He was the director of the National Counterproliferation Center for the intelligence community, and he was a senior advisor to the director of national intelligence for counterproliferation in all those jobs dealing either directly with or heavily focused on North Korea. So we're very lucky to have somebody who, who has deep, deep, deep expertise on this very serious problem that we face. Joe before we 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 actually get to the North Strategic Weapons Program I wanted to get your perspective on a couple of things. You're one of the few people that have actually been to North Korea. Um and I'm wondering if you could share with us what is it what is it like? How would you describe it? What is life like there for 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 the elite? What is life like there for the individual North Korean? Can you can you share that a little bit of that with sure, us? Sure Michael.
1: Thank you for the invitation a uh, very, very important subject, and uh, I'm honored to be here. Life in North Korea, and uh, it's been a few years since I visited. Uh, when I first visited North Korea, it was a bit surreal. Pyongyang is an interesting city in that it reminded me uh, a lot of Moscow, the architecture, the massive boulevards. But what struck me most was the uh, the absence of vehicles and the uh, few people who would be you would see on the street an element of almost appearing to be despondent you didn't get a sense of uh, energy so uh, an, an interesting city in that in that context
0: a little george orwell in it was so odd because
1: it was surreal for me and, and that struck me and it was the people that struck me also the uh, the the sense of uh, again uh, of Lacking that enthusiasm, but, but again, what, is, what does that mean? You, that's an impression. But what indeed, what, what, what got my attention was the massive boulevards and the lack of, of lack of vehicles, knowing that we have a lot of vehicles in the United States and traffic jams all over the place. It was uh, an interesting city, and uh, I never visited outside of Pyongyang, and I have to make that very clear. Uh, Pyongyang is a model city, and I'm not saying it's a Botancon village or anything, but it is the model city. That's where the resources go. Those who have been out of Pyongyang tell me uh, the, uh, the the situation is drastically different. The uh, lack of roads and and, and so forth. That, that uh, they're basically almost two North Koreas. One is Pyongyang, and the other is the rest of North Korea.
0: And life is very difficult for absolutely for those, outside those of Pyongyang. It has to be.
1: It has to be extremely difficult. You do see vehicles in Pyongyang. But 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 based on the license plates and so forth, these are government vehicles, and again, that's a few years ago, Michael. It could have changed, but I don't think it's changed too much.
0: One of the things, one of the things, Joe, we saw that when when Kim Jong Il died, CNN was there and some other networks were there, and you actually saw people weeping yes. in, in in the streets. Was that real? Was that was that uh, heartfelt
1: um, on the, on the part of those people? You know, it's a difficult question to answer. My first reaction would be. This is something they have to do. You have to survive in that society. You're expected to do certain things. So I, I think part of it is that. But I think there's another part of it. And it's it's a Confucian society still. And I think there is still this uh, this uh, warmth for the Kim family, going back to obviously to Kim Il-sung, his grandfather. So I think it's a bit of a mixture. I think there is there is that element of uh, of patriotism, loyalty, if you will, respect to of the leadership. Again, a Confucian philosophy of view, but I also think that there are significant constraints on the people, and what's expected of them,
0: and the cost of not of not, of not living up of 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 not, not living up that expectation. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. So you've, Joe, you've actually dealt with the North Koreans. You've actually sat across the negotiating table from them. How would you? describe their mindset? How would you describe their worldview? How do, they, how do they think about us? How do they think about the United States? How do they see the rest of the world, particularly in relation to, to North Korea?
1: You know, Michael, most of my contacts were with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs diplomats, so these uh, men and women have uh, spent a lot of time overseas and I use the word that they are more sophisticated in that regard. They, they, they're not xenophobic. They understand. Certainly, the United States, we have different values. and, and But I think one thing that sort of uh, permeates, whether it's the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or others, is a sense that the United States is a threat. It's a sense that the United States wants to change their regime. A sense, and it goes, I think, to the Korean War. I mean, that seems obvious. Uh, being we're in an armistice. we're still at a state of war with North Korea. So they see our joint military exercises. They see any manifestation coming from the United States as further proof that the U.S. wants to do away with that government in North Korea. And I think for some of these people, it's perplexing because they see the U.S. as who we are. They, they pre- I think anyone who's been out to see the U.S. has to appreciate our values and who we are as a people and certainly, compared to what North Korea and what the Korean Peninsula has put up with over the millennia, living in that tough neighborhood with China, Japan, and Russia, Mongolia going way back, but they don't, they they see the U.S. differently. But again, their history goes back to the Korean War, I think, and I think it, it, it permeates to the, the the present, where they are somewhat not perplexed. Yeah, I think perplex is a good word. Uh, and concerned that the U.S. really doesn't want to coexist with that government. We want to change it.
0: Let's shift gears here to the strategic weapons program, which are the nuclear weapons and the missiles to deliver them. And I'm a big believer that history matters, that knowing history is critical to both understanding where you are today and then to thinking about what the policy choices are. So I wanted to start by kind of educating folks about how we got from where we were in the early 1990s to where we are today. And there's probably nobody better to explain that because you lived through the whole thing. So first question is, when did the North start its nuclear weapons program? And why did they decide to go down that path? What were they thinking?
1: You know, Michael, I think it goes way back to the 60s with Kim Il-sung. I mean, Kim Il-sung always aspired, and he saw China move in that direction in the early 60s. He always aspired to having a nuclear weapons capability. I really, I, it goes that far back. And it really kicked in with the Soviet Union in the 80s. And it wasn't Kim Il-sung telling his counterpart in Moscow that we want nuclear weapons. It was, we want to be, we, we need the energy, we want peaceful nuclear capabilities. Ergo, light water reactors from uh, the Soviet Union to, to North Korea were, were committed uh, to Kim Il-sung. And that was really in the, in the 80s. And that's when the Soviet Union provided them with a research reactor, uh, got them the fuel, got them to ch- sign up to the nonproliferation treaty regime with the monitors that would be coming in, IAEA monitors and so forth. That's the Soviet Union and North Korea. But I still think in the back of Kim Il-sung's mind, sure, peaceful nuclear, but aspiring to nuclear weapons capability, to be part of the nuclear weapons club. And again, he saw China do that, the reaction to that, but indeed, then uh, moving in that direction. Uh, and I think with the implosion of the Soviet Union, when you look at 90, 91, and even before that, where Kim Il-sung knew he wasn't going to be getting that from the Soviets. The Soviets didn't have any money any longer. I mean, they were going to China for loans. And, and that's sort of when China kicked into it and you got more of a relationship with China, but also AQ Khan and the ability to look at the serial proliferator. AQ Khan, who was selling a Pakistani 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 scientist, scientist, the father of the Pakistani bomb, father of the Pakistani bomb, who literally was a serial proliferator, uh, selling nuclear technology, know how, certainly, and the elements of technology on, on enriching uranium to the highly enriched level for nuclear weapons programs. And he was out there with Libya. He was out there certainly with North Korea, with Iran, and so forth. So I think that that's a key point in the beginning of the 1990s. North Korea had Yongbyon, the, which is the plutonium nuclear facility. They built that on their own. They had IEA monitors coming in there, and that, again, was from 1989 to about 1994. If we remember in 1993, the IAEA had problems with Yongbyon. They felt the North Koreans weren't sharing a lot of information with them, and that's when the North Koreans threatened to pull out of the NPT, make Seoul, a sea of flames, and the visit of Jimmy Carter, the Billy Graham meeting with Kim Il Sung, lent itself to the Geneva talks and the agreed framework in 1994. That's the that's the critical piece. 1994. So this was the, the, the first agreement. The first, first negotiation with them. First negotiation, Michael, and Geneva, and we got it. Ambassador Bob Galucci was heading the U.S. team. We got North Korea to say, "Okay, we will halt everything at Yongbyon. It's a plutonium nuclear facility. We will take these spent fuel rods out." and not reprocess them. You would reprocess them for the fissile material, for plutonium-based nuclear weapons, and put them in cooling ponds will stop everything, and we will not build. They were also building a 50 and 200-mile nuclear facility. Too larger, too two larger, two larger Two much reaction. larger facilities, mm. and they will halt those, the construction of those facilities, halt everything at Yongbyon. And the U.S. committed to providing them with two light water reactors at Kumho, North Korea, in the interim, while we were building those light water reactors, we would give them heavy fuel oil to carry them through. And the anticipation was by two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two, they'd have the two significant light water reactors, a significant ca- uh, capacity, and they would have heavy fuel oil in the interim.
0: And this was the Korea Energy Development Corporation. That's exactly right. That we talked about that earlier. That was
1: exactly right. So in nineteen ninety four. That was the commitment. We had an election. The Democrats left. They were replaced by the Republicans. The Republican Congress said, you see, we're not going to fund this program. And that's when the Japanese kicked in, the European Union kicked in, and South Korea kicked in. And that's the Korea Energy Development Organization. And that was... And and, and that was supposed to deliver all of this stuff to North Korea. To monitor it, to deliver it, to ensure the resources were there and and what have you. And in the interim there, uh, tragically so, it was discovered. And I give a lot of credit to the intelligence community looking at what... North Korea's acquisitions were. It wasn't that anyone saw them spinning centrifuges and enriching uranium to the highly enriched level for nuclear weapons. The intelligence community was able to determine a significant number of acquisitions and interactions with AQ Khan, the serial proliferator, and sending some of their technicians, scientists to the Khan Research Labs, acquisitions of materials and so forth, and came up and informed the administration, informing the administration at that time. It was a going to uh, President George W. Bush and uh, Colin Powell was the Secretary of State, which armistice is a deputy, that the intelligence community assessed with, I might add, high confidence that North Korea was acquiring uh, materials for a highly enriched uranium program and the only purpose would be for nuclear weapons. And that was the beginning of the end of the Agreed Framework. Chris, that was a violation of the Agreed Framework. Y-
0: yes, I'm trying to get the timing right here. Was, was, the, was the North Korean cheating... A response to the fact that we were slow in delivering what we had promised or that we were backing away from what we had promised, or was it the, were those two things happening concurrently
1: I think concurrently I, I just don't believe uh, they, they must have known it would take more time than two thousand two thousand and one to build these two significant light water reactors yes, we were a few years off and so forth, but they were being built there was a, there were the money was there, the consortium was there, we were moving. My personal view is North Korea was looking for a second path. They would uh, walk away from the plutonium path because they they halted everything there, and and they would have the other option of having another path to nuclear weapons, and that would be using highly enriched. Somebody somebody told me once, you don't um, tear down the old Yankee Stadium
0: until you build the new Yankee Stadium, and, and that's a very uh, that's, good, that's one way to think about that's it. That's a very right? good point. So then, fast forward to the Six Party Talks, right, which is really the second attempt to try to get our arms around this. What what happened oh,
1: yeah. there? So with the failure of the and it's not the failure of the agreed framework, with North Korea having the second path and basically cheating. That's the word. And they don't like that word, but they they were the certainly the spirit of the agreed framework you you would not be reprocessing spent few hours or enriching uranium. And that also also is the North South Agreement that they signed up to in nineteen ninety one with South Korea. So the North Koreans were offended by that. They they admitted to our delegation I went to North Korea in October of 2002 that they had this program had other things and basically lived with it that wasn't going to happen we stopped the construction of the light water reactors we held off on the provision of heavy fuel oil they threatened to pull out of the non proliferation treaty which eventually they did. Uh, they threatened to take out those spent fuel rods over eight thousand and reprocess them for fissile material, which they did. And so you have a period between October and January, October of two thousand two and January of two thousand three, where things became very tense because North Korea pulled out of the NPT, reprocessing spent fuel rods for nuclear weapons, and at that point it was with the uh, George W. Bush administration, our Secretary of State. Reached out to the uh, Chinese, his counterpart Li Zhaoxing, the foreign minister in Beijing, and said maybe we need to sit down with the North Koreans. And that was in April of 2003, and that was the begin- That was an agreement then to establish the Six Party Talks. And the first meeting was in August of 2003, and moving up to. September of 2005, that was an agreement based on these. We had a number of plenary sessions and task force sessions. And we finally got an agreement in September 19, September 2005, committing North Korea to comprehensive, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement in return for security assurances, ultimately a peace treaty, more normal relationship, and coming back to the NPT as a non-nuclear weapon state and providing them with light water reactors and energy assistance and economic development assistance.
0: Knowing that they that they signed up to something similar the first time around yes. and cheated, yes. were you sitting there thinking that we're going down the same path here again? Well, or was they, there was was there reason to be hopeful?
1: We were hopeful. We were hopeful. This was a this was a Kim Jong Il who obviously signed off on this. He actually mentioned to his counterpart in in, in Beijing that he was committed to it. We had the uh, we had monitors going in uh, into the country, IEA monitors to verify that they were in compliance. To include monitors from the respective countries, nuclear weapon states, China, U.S. and so forth. So we felt with a good monitoring regime, we could confirm that uh, North Korea was not uh, reprocessing spent fuel rods, didn't have a a second plutonium facility, and that we would uh, discern where they were enriching uranium because. We didn't have granularity, even at that time, as to the scope of their uranium enrichment program. We knew they had a program, they admitted to a program, and they get committed in September of 2005 to not pursue, to, to dismantle all of their ongoing nuclear weapons programs.
0: And what happened then? It was, was it that... At the end of the day, they weren't serious at all, or did something Did something intervene? Well,
1: I think your question about 1994 comes to the fore on that. We had an oral agreement that the monitors who would be doing the inspections would be able to leave Jungbjorn and, and inspect areas, if you will. Uh, they would be not challenged inspections, but they would say, look, we'd like to go to Area A, Area B. We'd also like to take samples and maybe take them out of the country just to, to verify, to confirm what you're telling us. And orally, the North Koreans had agreed, but we, we asked that it be in writing, and, and they refused to put it in writing. At, that was the end of 2008, and when they refused to agree to sign up to something they orally told us they would do, uh, that was the end of the uh, six-party talks. So,
0: so really two major sets of negotiations yes. here that, yes. that at the end of the day didn't end. Did not end. Didn't did, did end this thing. That's so, correct. So to shift gears a second time, I'd like you to talk a little bit about capabilities. So so as you know, there, there's three pieces you need here, right? There's a nuclear weapon there, there that can produce a nuclear yield. We know with certainty right. they have that. Right. The second is a missile that can deliver that to the distance you want it to go, right? right? right. To Seoul, to Tokyo, to the continental United States. Right. And then the third piece is to make the nuclear weapon small enough to miniaturize it, right so that it can fit on that missile and go the distance you want it to go. And then make all of that work, right, right? with the, all the electronics work, with the, 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 the pressures and tensions and heat of, of a missile flight and reentry, right? Correct. So where do you think they are at this moment, and how close are we to to the, the, the thing everybody's worried about?
1: I think they're on the cusp of having um, a nuclear weapons capability that threatens the whole of the United States. I believe, uh, and, and you said it well, that they've, they've certainly weaponized. The assessment is they've miniaturized. The, we, they've made it to a delivery system. They have the delivery systems. We saw the Hwasung 12 the Hwasung 14 distance of Detroit, Chicago, if you extrapolate from what we saw with their uh, test launches. It's a question of reentry vehicle. Does it burn up coming into the, the atmosphere? Right now, they're probably not there. I think the sense is they're not but that they're on the cusp we're talking 6 months 12 months maybe 18 at the outset but i think certainly within reach of having a nuclear weapons system that in fact is an existential nuclear threat to the united states
0: so why does kim jong un want this capability what what is his what is his motivation what what, what are his intentions here why is this um, apparently so important to him
1: you know, given what we saw with his father, Kim Jong-il, and, and you mentioned we discussed the joint statement where Kim Jong-il committed to comprehensive dismantlement. Here you have a Kim Jong-un, comes in 27, 28, and now six years in power. He's building a legacy. I mean, what he's doing is probably what Kim Il-sung, his grandfather, aspired to, maybe he is certainly his father also. But they were denied that ability to acquire those capabilities at that time, Kim Il-sung was denied that from the Soviet Union with the research reactor, NPT, monitors, uh, the 90s with the agreed framework, and even going to the joint statement, everyone's looking, the community was there, China was watching, and we were all there on comprehensive denuclearization.
0: So, so, so this is an important point. So you would actually argue, Joe, that although those agreements eventually failed, they did slow them down
1: there's no question the agreement slowed them down. The agreed framework slowed them down. I think the joint statement slowed them down, but again, that's a short period of time. We're talking 2005, 2008. And then after 2008, 2009, if you will, they start running. They they were running. And that started with Kim Jong-il, obviously. And then in, 2000, in 2012, January 2012, December 2011, his son, Kim Jong-un, c- continued with that race, a race to acquire. Why? Two reasons. One is the reason they put out to the public their public, very, and they put it out to us and everyone else. They speak it of their nuclear weapons program as a nuclear deterrent. Right? We have a nuclear weapons capability. No one is going to mess with us. They cite their 2,000 years of recorded history, uh, invasions by all these big countries, surrounding countries. And that's why we talk about them uh, being the Hermit Kingdom. And they say, no one's going to mess with us if we have nuclear weapons. So one is nuclear weapons capability. It's a nuclear deterrent. And also, that's, that, that's, a, that's a very rational way of thinking. Well, it is it, a it, rational it, way. If you're them. It is a rational way, and I think, it, I think it resonates. But it also puts them at the table. It puts them at the table with, if you will, those five nuclear weapon states, but also making them the ninth nuclear weapon state. And I think their intent, and their intent continues on this path, is to get the U.S. not only to recognize the fact that they have nuclear weapons and they have delivery systems that has capabilities in the region and and, and soon to the U.S., but to accept it, to accept it. And and they often cite, and you mentioned some of the work I did as a negotiator, they often cite, treat us the way you treat Pakistan. We could be a good friend of the United States, and we will never use it. We will protect it and so forth. We will never... Proliferate. We will never sell it. Obviously, we will never use it because we know it will be the end. And we make it very clear we will know through our our capabilities, forensic capabilities, if you ever sold anything. So their their intent, in my view, is okay, nuclear deterrent, but it's also to be part of this nuclear club, nuclear weapons club, the stature that comes with it, and so forth. And I think they feel. This is a legacy that's achievable now with this young man who comes in, that his grandfather couldn't do it, his father couldn't do it, he can do
0: it. So so, so there's a domestic political
1: Absolutely. piece to this? It resonates. It resonates big time.
0: What about coercion? Is that a possible motivation here for him, that once he has these weapons? I don't know the answer to this question. Sure. But once he has these weapons, he would be in a position to coerce South Korea, the United States— is that something, it's not something you hear about, it's not something that's discussed a lot in in the media. Are, are you concerned about that? I hear
1: about that. I hear about that from some of my former colleagues uh, who really uh, know these issues and know them well, and I respect their views on this. I think if North Korea is thinking that them retaining nuclear weapons, they will have an ability to coerce South Korea, if is a reunification scenario, and they will then dominate the playing field and... And the U.S. wouldn't be part of it. And the U.S., because they have a nuclear weapons capability, we would be intimidated by the capability. I just think this is fallacious thinking. I think North Korea, they know who we are. We're committed to the defense of South Korea. We're not fickle. We will always be there for the South Koreans. And need the South Koreans. <laughs> are very strong people. Look what they've done over the last decade to two decades. What a great, vibrant, liberal democracy we have. That is the model. And whether... We're there with, and we will be there with our extended nuclear deterrence commitments, but certainly South Korea would say, even if there's a question about that, or in addition to our extended nuclear deterrence capabilities and commitments, my view is they would say, we need our own nuclear weapons also, because this would then give us double protection from North Korea that may want to try to intimidate us with their nuclear weapons assuming they still have those nuclear weapons in a period like that. So, yes, I see that. I just don't see North Korea using their nuclear weapons to intimidate anyone, to threaten anyone, because they know that would be the end. That will be the end. And I I don't think there's any ambiguity on the part of the leadership, in my personal view, Michael, on the part of the leadership in Pyongyang, knowing that if they ever use those nuclear weapons and and threaten to use them, I mean, they'd be coming right right to the tipping point. That would be the end of the regime.
0: So we have North Korea um, possibly a few months away from having the capability of putting a U.S. city at risk of nuclear attack. You have the president of the United States saying very clearly several months ago they will not be allowed to achieve that capability. What are the president's options here?
1: Very difficult. I mean, uh, the president has a lot of options, obviously, but they were all difficult options. One that is. Not so difficult, but not, uh, I don't think it's going to achieve what we want is the comprehensive denuclearization, but the strong option is what he's, what we're doing, what the president's doing, what we're doing. Sanctions, executive orders that, that, that really, really go at the uh, at isolating the country and denying them any any amount of resources to, to sustain their nuclear and missile programs. So the sanctions are, uh, are central. Missile defense, more THAAD, more Aegis, ground-based systems, uh, you know... Uh, Joint military exercises to include Japan and maybe others. A strong deterrence. And I might add... uh, A strong commitment to South Korea and Japan's defense? Absolutely. And I might add a preemption option to make it very clear to North Korea, you launch anything that's going to be a threat, an imminent threat to our allies or us, we're taking it down. And don't do anything about it. And don't do anything about it. So basically, literally, the country is isolating itself, has made itself a pariah state, Resources will be drained uh their ability if they if they should uh you know and 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 anything they should do, we would monitor it with the missile defense and so forth, but a strong deterrence, knowing that we could just come in there and and indeed, this preemptive making it clear to North Korea you just don 't launch something that could have what you say you have and which you threaten possibly to even use a nuclear warhead, even a conventional but nuclear we take it out and on this thing. And I think that's a strong deterrence to North Korea. Don't mess with us. Do you think it would, do you think it's
0: possible that that kind of pressure, and I think we do have more pressure on them today than we had in a long time, that that pressure could get Kim Jong-un to change? Or do you see him him stopping short of, of getting to where he wants to go? Or is the idea to keep him in a box once he gets there?
1: Those are all good questions, Michael. My personal view... What I just described and those options will not get us where we want to be. That will not prevent, deter, mitigate what he's doing. He will continue to seek, he's at the cusp of that nuclear weapons capability to strike the whole of the United States, establish himself as a nuclear weapon state, and, and work from that position there. So I don't, I think using that option, those tools available to us will further isolate, make it much more difficult. And, uh, but uh, to give up his nuclear weapons? No, I think he's going to do what he has to do to retain those nuclear weapons using that. I, and that's the other side. You asked the options. The other side is, I think eventually we're going to have to sit down with this man and sit down with this, uh, with this uh, leadership. And that's really Kim Jong-un. I mean, Kim Jong-un is, you know, he is the government. He is the ultimate decision maker. And sit down, and get him to stop what he's doing, because I think we could all, and I think we all agree, we could stumble into something if he continues with nuclear tests, missile launches. We we have a, a more enhanced missile defense, joint military exercises, enhanced sanctions, and so forth. The ability, the, the likelihood of stumbling into to something, not planned. Not expected, but stumbling into something is that much greater. And, and dealing with the North Korea, I think that, that's, a, that's an important part of it. I mentioned preemption of taking down one of their missile launchers because we view that as a threat, an imminent threat to us, our allies. They may see it differently or they may posture differently and we may respond to that. So I really think sitting down and, and getting them to stop what they're doing. Now, can we get them to stop what they're doing? I personally think we can. I mean, they've, they've you know, almost 20 l- missile launches and talking about a hydrogen bomb test on the 3rd of September, a nu- uh, miniaturized, and uh, I mean, they've advanced since 2009 to 2016, 2017, in an exponential way. So to get them to stop, I think they feel they're, they're there. I think we could get them to stop. It's a question of then what?
0: Yeah. Seems to me that the timing is important here, right? It- once he demonstrates the capability yeah. he wants to demonstrate, he'll be more than happy to talk to us, yes. right? Yeah. Because he'll be sitting there that's as, right. that's as that's a fair. nuclear power. That's fair. And he might, at that point, be willing to negotiate some sort of a freeze, right. but he will want something in return.
1: That's right. That's right. And All what right. will that be? Well, I think he would. I think the first thing has to be security assurances. I think they're still looking at a peace treaty, Michael. I mean, they're, 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 this is this is the really their sign of going on. They want a peace treaty. And, and in some ways, they think a peace treaty means the U.S. would leave the Korean Peninsula. We would no longer be in South Korea, and that may even play into a scenario that you alluded to a few minutes ago—that they could sort of dominate a negotiation with South Korea. I don't see it that way, but uh, I, I think they're looking for security assurances. I do. I, I mean, this is this is a constant refrain from them. We—the the Korean War is still there. We're in a state of war with the armistice. If we can get a peace treaty, we can move forward. Uh, and of course, South Korea is very part a big part of of deciding whether we ever get close to a peace treaty and maybe liaison officers in our respective capitals and they would want us to on the on the joint military exercises and that 's the freeze for freeze they would want us to stop we 're never going to stop because they 're defensive. And it's based on what North Korea has been doing since the Korean War. They've been threatening South Korea, so he won't stop. But they're certainly concerned about the offensive part. They see an offensive part, these joint military exercises. When they heard the South Korean government with Park Geun-hye talk about the decapitation of the leadership in Pyongyang, they would want, at least, if you will, that's a deliverable to them. We say these are just normal defensive joint exercises. You know, we could scale one or two back. We can talk about that. We can talk about, you know, eventually moving towards a peace treaty if all things are in place, knowing that the decision of, of U.S. presence is an issue between the United States and South Korea and and, and and not North Korea. So there are deliverables that I think they would they would want. And, and they need to keep hearing from us that we're sitting here talking to you, but we will never accept you as a nuclear weapon state. We will continue this dialogue. And eventually, if you do want that, and they do want a normal relationship with the U.S., Eventually, if you do want that normal relationship, that would begin when you do de- denuclearize. So we could have intersections, liaison offices, and so forth, but not formal relations, which is what they've aspired to going way back, certainly so since 2003, until we move in that. And Michael, that may be 5, 10, 15, 20 years we're talking out, But I think what we're talking about is at least stopping the escalation the best we can, yeah. ensuring that we don't stumble into something mm-hmm. we don't uh, want. Yeah. So all the talk of military
0: a, you know, a military option, right? Your reaction to that?
1: Well, you know, uh, a military option, I think if we go into North Korea, if you will, on the preventive side, if we, we know where some of their facilities are, where they launch or where you know, some of they store, and, and we see something as imminent down the road, and we want to take it out so it doesn't become imminent. So we prevent a threat from manifesting itself. That's a fair logic, And if North Korea keeps threatening and keeps launching and so forth, you could see where that could dominate the conversation, where people say, look, we just can't wait for them to launch. We've got to do something of a preventive nature. We don't know what's on top of it. We don't know what's on top of it. it. That's exactly right. So you can see that argument uh, getting a, a great attraction. And North Korea has to understand that argument will get great attraction as they continue to escalate and so forth. But I think at this moment now, currently as we speak, going into North Korea, and doing something of a preventive nature, because I think they would see that as the prelude to a decapitation, to wiping out North Korea. So what they've always feared, what they've always feared, and that, and that's what they've been telling their people, the, the the objective, the U.S. objective is is to destroy us, wipe us out. And I think at that in that time, and that mentality, of you know, you kill me, I kill you. Uh, they would be, and they have significant, and we all know that, they have sig- significant capabilities, conventional. At the Kaesong Heights, looking at Seoul, our, our facilities, U.S. facilities, joint facilities with South Koreans, these, these would be first targets. There's no question. They will go after these targets. It would be horrific war. It would be
0: horrific war. The war of words between Kim Jong-un and the president. Doesn't help. Not helpful. Not helpful. Particularly with a guy like Kim Jong-un.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you think about that? I just think we just got to tone that down. Stop. There's a sensitivity there, and a lot of the people view Kim Jong Un as you know as their you know their president, their you know as the Kim family and all that. And a lot of people personalize that, but certainly he personalizes that, in my view. And we know what's happened. He's frustrated everyone, and and you could see where everyone's so frustrated. Maybe we would use this bombast, this uh, you know significant preemptive strike. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so. I think I think he needs to tone it down. Look, North Korea is famous for using vitriolic commentary and yeah, so, so, harper so, hyperbole, calling others names. They yeah. don't like them. They don't like to be called names, but yeah, so they're so very good a, at that. That's
0: an interesting contrast, right? Why 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 does a country that uses it so? <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? Be so sensitive to it. Well,
1: that's a very good point, point. and I can, you could see why they need to. Again, these this is a claustrophobic people. They're xenophobic. They don't even have contact with China any longer. They live in their own bubble, and they don't understand the world. And they sort of are immune to how they project themselves. Look, when I would say those things to my negotiating counterparts from North Korea, I would say, why would you say those things? They are so offensive. And he would look at me and say, Mr. De you know we don't mean that. We're just saying it. Well, no, we don't know that you don't mean it. When you have a YouTube taking out New York City, we don't know that you don't mean it. They live in their own bubble and they don't really get it. Now they're getting it because they're hearing it from our own president and they're hearing it at the UN General Assembly and, and you can see their reaction. You can see their reaction. It's an immediate reaction. It's you're attacking us and so we're going to attack you. So uh, I think that could escalate, but I don't, I, I don't think it will because I think logic will prevail. No one wants it to escalate to a point where uh, we can have casualties.
0: So I want to talk about China for a second. I think I'll ask you the question, but my assumption would be that China would be a critical piece of the path that you're talking about, right? This, 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 this ultimately doing what we need to do to defend ourselves, to um, put pressure on them, but ultimately to sit down and talk with them. China would be an absolutely critical piece of making that happen and being part of it. Yes. There seems to be an assumption on, on the part of a lot of people that if only China would strangle North Korea enough, use its economic leverage, that Kim would back away from this path he's right, on. Right. What's your thought about that?
1: One, well, I don't think China's going to do the do that type of strangulation on North Korea. I mean, in many ways, China needs North Korea, that, that buffer, uh, that, that um, uh, as they view it, as I'll use the term, but that vassal state, that's really North Korea provides China with that buffer uh, from, from South that, Korea from and the that, U.S. From
0: that country that's allied with the United States yeah, of America. Yeah, you know, they uh, remember,
1: you know, the Yellow River, 19, you know, so, so there's a lot of history there. So I think North Korea appreciates their strategic role in providing China with the, that element of of security, if you will. Not that China would think we would be going to the Yellow River. That's why our dialogue with China is so important to give assurances to China that is not our intention. And and uh, obviously our country, uh, we're doing that. We have Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Dialogue, and with China, I'm sure that's part of the dialogue. That's not where the U.S. is, and, and we would never be there. And, uh, and certainly the Yellow River, going back to the Korean War, was because the North Koreans came into South Korea, and, and it had nothing to do with that. So I think China appreciates the, the value of North Korea being uh, an independent actor and not... Allied with the US and, and certainly with South Korea. Having said that, China has lots of levers. You're absolutely right. Crude oil, over 90%, petroleum products, trade. I mean, if any of that stuff all stopped, I mean, it's the beginning of the end of the economy, I mean, instability, and, and so on. And Again, China doesn't want that. that that's just it's kind of messy. Loose nukes, who's going to follow Kim Jong un? Uh, what's going to happen there? That, that's, that's not what China wants. The status quo, anti is pretty good. It's, we got to work it. We can work it. And let's see if we can get it going. So, But China is angered terribly with North Korea. They've been totally disrespectful of Xi Jinping. I mean, it's amazing with this young man, the amount of disrespect he has shown to China and to Xi Jinping and so forth. So they're not happy with uh, North Korea. But I do believe. China can get North Korea to do what they did in April of 2003, get North Korea to sit down with the Americans. I know this freeze for freeze doesn't hold any water. We're not going to stop our joint military exercises to sit down with the North Koreans. However, if the U.S. says we, we no longer have preconditions for these talks, in the past we were talking about you have to commit to denuclearization. If the U.S. indicates, and all indications from uh, Secretary Rex and are that we're saying that, we're not telling you you have to commit to denuclearization. We're telling you don't launch missiles or have nuclear tests, and we'll talk to you, and we, we, we will go from there. And I think that's a fair position to put in there. So, I, one, I think the Chinese can get North Koreans to do that. But, you know, even discounting China in that equation, I think we could do that. We could do that with the North Koreans. I mean, we've had the New York Channel. We've had dialogue and so We're the ones they really want to talk to. They're the ones they really want to talk to. In fact, they probably don't want to hear it from the Chinese. They'd rather just hear it from the United States. So Joe, two more questions.
0: The first is, let's assume that 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 for the last 45 minutes we had been in the sit room and the president was sitting there listening to this conversation and was listening to what to what you had to say. And the meeting's over and on the way out he grabs you privately and he said, "What do you think? What do I need to know? What would you tell me?"
1: Keep up the strong defense, keep up the strong relationship with our allies in South Korea, missile defense, sanctions there needs to be consequences for what North Korea is doing. I would tone down the rhetoric on. There needs to be consequences. However, give them an off-ramp. Give Kim Jong-un an off-ramp. He needs help, and he probably will take that off-ramp because I think he knows he's also at the tipping point. That inflection point could be the beginning of the end of In North for Korea him, right. for him. So give him an off-ramp, and that off-ramp could be, okay, we don't have to go through China. Okay, we'll sit down with you, but don't launch missiles. Don't threaten us. Don't have nuclear and We'll talk to you. You don't have to commit to denuclearization, but that's where we want to go. And if the president tells him, we use our New York channel, you do whatever we want on that, my personal view is I think the North Koreans, I think Kim Jong-un would uh, accept that proposal because it does give them an option of, of, of de-escalating this. I think in the heart of hearts, Michael, North Korea knows they're extremely vulnerable and they know what our capabilities are and they have no friends but the war of words makes it more difficult for them to accept that the war of words so if we could just tone that down a little a lot a, a lot a <laughs> lot thank you a lot and and start and, and even if those talks don't manifest as something michael it will lend itself to a little more confidence building in the relationship maybe some trust but we we'll, be moving we'll be moving away from this extreme escalation
0: So that's a great transition into the last question. And I want to read you a quote from President Kennedy and get you to react to it. This is President Kennedy reflecting on what he saw as the central lesson from the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said, above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war.
1: I think that's so powerful. That's so appropriate for today. I think Kim Jong-un, knowing who he is, the family, and and again, that Confucian society, for him to lose face, to be humiliated and so forth, I probably, I think he would opt to go all the way on the other side, not to lose that. An off-ramp, that would give him some face, and that's negotiations. We're sitting down with you and, and treating you as a sovereign state with respect but we need to resolve some of these issues. And I, I think that makes that makes so much sense. We don't want conflict, obviously. And if we uh, uh, humiliating defeat for Kim Jong-un, I personally, I can't imagine what that would look like. I think he would prefer going down in flames before he would take a humiliating defeat.
0: Which could mean the destruction of a U.S. city. Ambassador Joe Jatrani, thank you so much for thank joining us. Thank you, Michael,
1: us. and thank you for what you're doing.
0: That was Ambassador Joe Detrani on Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week.